Welcome, everyone. My name is Anna Gjmabusa, and I'm a professor of political science here at Stanford, as well as a fellow at Hoover and the Freeman Spalding Institute. I'd like to welcome you to the first of two panels on security in the age of liberal democratic erosion. Today, we want to explore the political and security challenges posed to liberal democracy, both in the United States and elsewhere, by several hostile actors. Next week, we'll talk about the potential responses, what we can do about these challenges. And so today we've assembled an all-star team of experts to examine the potential adversaries. In order of the presentations, we have first on China, Liz Economy. Liz is a senior fellow at Hoover and a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. She's an expert on Chinese domestic and foreign policy and the author of several books, uh, most recently, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State. On Russia, next we'll hear from Mike McFall, Mike is the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at Hoover, as well as a professor of political science and the director of the Freeman Spogli Institute. He has served as the US, US ambassador to Russia and was also the special assistant to the president and senior director for Russian and Eurasian affairs at the National Security Council. Next we'll have on Iran, Abbas Milani. Abbas is a research fellow and co-director of the Iran Democracy Project here at Hoover. He's also the Hamid and Christia Magadam director of the Iranian studies program. He's the author of several books on U.S.-Iran relations and Iranian cultural, political, and security issues. And finally, on misinformation, we'll have Kate Starbird. Kate is a visiting professor at the Cyber Policy Center and an associate professor at the University of Washington. Her research focuses on human-computer interaction and crisis informatics, the use of how information and communication technologies are used during crises. She's a co-founder of the UW Center for an Informed Public. Each of our panelists will speak for about eight to 10 minutes, and we will then open up to Q&A. Uh, please feel free to ask questions during, using the Q&A window, um, and I'll be sure to transmit them to the panelists. So please join me in welcoming our experts, and we'll start off with Liz on China. Um, so thanks so much, Anna. Uh, it's terrific to be here uh, and to participate on this panel uh, with such a distinguished group of scholars. Um, you know, in the past five to seven years, there's really been a wholesale shift uh, in how the U.S. Uh, understands the challenge that China poses to it and to the rules-based order that the U.S. supports. Uh, since the normalization of relations in 1979, uh, U.S. policy toward China has been premised on a policy of constructive engagement. Basically, the U.S. believed that if it encouraged China's uh, integration into the liberal international order, that this integration, coupled with the rise of the Chinese middle class, uh, would accelerate the process of political and economic liber liberalization within China uh, and make China, in the words of former Deputy Secretary of State Bob Zelik, uh, a responsible stakeholder in that order. Obviously, this was born of a certain conceit uh, that market or liberal democracy, whatever its flaws, uh, represented the most desirable form of government for all countries. Uh, over the past decade or so, and certainly since the advent of Xi Jinping uh, as leader of China in 2012, however, uh, this assumption has been upended. Uh, there's little evidence that China is reforming politically and economically at home, and rather than becoming a standard bearer for the rules-based order, it has challenged many of its precepts. Constructive engagement is mostly dead, uh, and the U.S. views China not only as a strategic competitor, but also as a revisionist power, one that is bent on undermining the values and norms of the rules-based order. Uh, so what does that mean in concrete terms? Uh, I'm going to touch lightly on the economic and security realms and focus more on the political arena, which I think is more at the heart of today's uh, discussion. In the economic realm, in many respects, there's not much that's new, uh, but the U.S. perception of threat has increased as a result of China's growing economic power and capacity to transform the way that business is done globally. 
China has long undermined norms of free trade and open investment through subsidies to its own firms, non-market barriers to entry, coerced technology transfer, and intellectual property theft uh, that has only been accelerated with the advent of cyber uh, economic espionage. Uh, emerging challenges include the application of China's social credit system, which evaluates the political and economic trustworthiness of Chinese citizens and rewards and punishes them accordingly to multinationals, uh, the export of China's development model through the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, and the advent of China's digital currency and electronic payment system, uh, which may provide Beijing with a greater insight and control over U.S. multinationals operating in China, as well as enable Beijing to avoid the international sanctions regime. We actually have uh, started up a project on this uh, at Hoover uh, that will be coming out with its findings in another six months or so. Uh, on the security front, the primary threat to U.S. interests is really in China's backyard, uh, where Xi Jinping has moved from staking claims around sovereignty to realizing them. This includes the South China Sea, Taiwan, the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands, and contested border territories with India and Bhutan. We saw during the pandemic that China took assertive action across all of these territorial disputes. And for the U.S., I think there are several concerns. First, one-third of global shipping uh, travels through the South China Sea, so any control ceded to China is problematic. Uh, second, China's claims directly affect some of our closest allies and partners, such as Japan, the Philippines, India, and Taiwan. Uh, and third, Beijing is flouting the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and Freedom of Navigation uh, by ignoring the ruling uh, uh, in 2016 of the Permanent Court of Arbitration, which said that China's claims uh, to the South China Sea within the Nine Dash Line had no legal basis. I think looking ahead, uh, you know, China's growing global military presence is going to become an increasing source of, of concern uh, for the United States. We already see this uh, emerging in areas uh, like the Arctic and in terms of things like illegal fishing. Uh, on the political front, uh, I would argue that China poses three distinct challenges to the US and to the liberal international order. Uh, first, by China's actions within its own country. It's egregious human rights abuses in Xinjiang, which several countries, including the United States, have now called genocide. It's political repression in Hong Kong and the abrogation of the joint declaration. Uh, it's, and it's detention of foreigners, uh, including some Americans, without due process. Uh, the second challenge is, is, is one that China poses within the United States itself. This is where I'm going to focus uh, the remainder of my remarks, so I'll come back to that. And then third, China has undertaken a significant effort to transform norms and values within international organizations, such as the United Nations, uh, to align them with its own. So trying to redefine what constitutes human rights, undermining the role of human rights defenders within the United Nations, and proposing new technical standards, uh, including those that would strengthen state control over the internet. I think China's influence in the United Nations and its ability to control political narrative was particularly troubling uh, during the pandemic uh, when we saw that the World Health Organization really dragged its feet in acknowledging the virulence and transmissibility of the virus and while it was praising China for its transparency and, and quick response. So let me now focus for the last part of my remarks on how China attempts to shape US political discourse and the political choices of US actors. Um, I only have time for a few examples, but if people are interested in the larger context, uh, Hoover issued a terrific report in 2018 that was directed by Larry Diamond and Orville Schell, China's influence in American interests, promoting constructive vigilance. Uh, and Glenn Tiffert uh, produced a follow-on report, uh, Global Engagement, Rethinking Risk in the Research Enterprise. But let me now just talk about a few ways in which I think China's undermining US values and norms in universities, with US business, and then in the media. 
First, in universities, uh, we see that China tries to control the narrative around sovereignty issues. For example, when UC San Diego invited the Dalai Lama to speak, uh, the, con the, the consulate in Los Angeles, as well as the Chinese Student and Scholar Association protested. The university didn't back down, but as punishment, uh, Beijing ceased providing scholarship money to students uh, attending UCSD for a few years. Fear of political repercussions can also constrain free speech among Chinese students on sensitive political issues within university classrooms. Uh, and during COVID-19, uh, when everything was being done via Zoom and taped, uh, some university professors allowed their students to opt out of classroom participation to protect them. So you can see that really the entire nature of the US uh, university educational system is being transformed uh, by, by China's sort of political coercion you know, across the Pacific. Uh, Confucius Institutes, of course, have engendered a lot of controversy, and there have been some cases where CIs have tried to intervene in uni university programming. But even before that point, uh, they influenced university norms by insisting that contracts remain secret and that CIs, CIs use mainland teachers and curriculum completely outside traditional university governance standards. Finally, university professors are also targets of Chinese influence efforts, in some cases through the Thousand Talents Program, the Chinese government supports top foreign scientists and others to affiliate with Chinese institutions, either moving to China or remaining uh, at their home institutions. And while some of the activities supports legitimate scientific cooperation, there are also cases of IP theft. Uh, in other cases, Chinese companies and think tanks directly fund US social scientists who are doing research on China, raising doubts about the credibility of some of that research. On the business front, the most famous case, of course, now is the, is the one of the Houston Rockets uh, general manager, Daryl Morey, who in October 2019 tweeted, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. In response to the tweet, Chinese companies canceled all licensing deals for the Rockets merchandise and the Chinese government banned all CCTV broadcasts of NBA games and reportedly called on the NBA to fire Morey. Nike also removed all Houston Rockets apparel from its stores. But what's particularly striking in this instance is not just the effort to use economic leverage to pressure a, a US business, that happens all the time, uh, but rather the statement by state-owned CCTV that any remarks that challenge national sovereignty and social stability are not within the scope of freedom of speech. Right? There couldn't be a clearer demonstration of China's belief that it has the right to apply the same standards of free speech that it practices at home to actors abroad. There are also many other cases, the hotel and airline industries, tech companies, and Hollywood that have all changed their traditional operating norms to conform with PRC political preferences. And finally, I think the media is probably where we see the greatest transformation in Chinese behavior. Traditionally, China's focused simply on propaganda, placing China daily inserts into the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, or running its China global television network 24 seven, but nobody watches it. So at some level, nobody really cares. But in the past two years, uh, we've seen that China's managed to take advantage of the polarization uh, in American society to push into the realm of active disinformation, taking, a, I think, a page out of the Russia playbook. Uh, some of this was tied to the pandemic. Uh, China used Facebook and Twitter and YouTube uh, to tout Chinese vaccines as superior, to raise doubts about US vaccines such as Pfizer, and to argue that COVID-19 began at Fort Detrick in the US. China also amplified QAnon-related conspiracy theories about deep state satanic cabals and election fraud. Twitter ended up removing more than 26,000 Chinese state-backed accounts and uncovered 150,000 amplifier accounts. So I think this is a really new and troubling uh, arena of Chinese influence operations. 
Let me just finish by offering a few broader conclusions. I think first, by looking across all the arenas, security, economics, and politics, the priority of Beijing controlling the narrative around sovereignty emerges very clearly. But red lines are also proliferating to include things like the pandemic. While it didn't affect the United States, for example, Beijing launched an economic boycott of Australian exports when Australia called for an investigation into COVID-19. Second, in some cases, such as trade and investment, Washington characterizes behavior that was once acceptable or perhaps problematic now is threatening because it no longer sees China on an overall trajectory of reform and opening and because Chinese capabilities have expanded and its intentions have become clear. Third, China's state-centered system and vast market enable it to mobilize political and financial resources to induce and coerce behavior in ways that make it very difficult for the United States to compete. And finally, many Chinese initiatives, such as Confucius Institutes and the Thousand Talents Program, operate in a gray zone where intentions appear ambiguous, ambiguous and they defy easy categorization, making them particularly difficult to respond to. So I'll stop there and thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Liz. Um, so next we have Mike McFall on Russia. Okay, thank you, Anna. You can hear me okay? And uh, Liz, that was fantastic. It's a real honor to be on this panel. Uh, with friends and colleagues. Uh, Abbas, it reminds me, we did a panel like this a decade ago, China, Russia, and Iran, but we didn't have the same talent that we have today. So uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you all. I'm gonna talk about Russia for eight minutes. I'm gonna use some slides, mostly just pictures, so that you can look at them instead of me. My talk's gonna sound a lot like Liz's. Uh, um, and if you only remember four points, I want you to remember these four. This is my bluff, bottom line up front. Uh, first, Russia's more powerful than you think. Russia's not as powerful as China on, all, on almost every metric, but I think it's way more powerful than most people think. It is not a declining power. I'm gonna say a little bit about that. Uh, two, Putin is an ideological motivated uh, actor in the world. That will be the most controversial thing I say today. Uh, um, uh, third, he's more revisionist about the liberal international order uh, that Liz just talked about, um, uh, I think, than I actually think, Liz, let's talk about this in questions. I think he's more revisionist than Xi Jinping today, although the long-term trajectory, I think, reverses that. So let's discuss that after I get done. And then fourth, uh, he doesn't have as much power as Xi Jinping, most certainly not nearly as much power as we do. And I think we underestimate our power at times in this ideological struggle. But what power he has, he's not afraid to use. And I think that's what makes him a very risky, dangerous actor in the international system today. So let me just develop uh, these three points, four points if I have time. Um, First on the declining power, I'm gonna skip this for today's presentation. Um, I just wanna flag that uh, it depends on what you're measuring. Uh, when it comes to nuclear power, of course, Russia is the only other superpower compared to the United States. Conventional power, Russia is not a global power, but in Europe, I would say is a very formidable power and in many ways outpaces uh, the capabilities that the NATO alliance has. Third, tremendous cyber capabilities. Maybe we'll hear more about that later. Um, and then fourth, this always gets a lot of attention that Russia is 2% of the world economy, and that is true. But I, what I want to suggest to you today is Russia has enough power. It's good enough to be belligerent uh, with respect to its foreign policy. 
And especially remember whether you think it's the 11th ranked economy or sixth, if we use purchase power parity, um, it's enough to do damage, especially because Putin controls a big chunk of that economy. Second, and this is very controversial among Russia followers, so I'm, I'm still kind of rethinking the way I talk about this, but I do think that Putinism is a thing. It is an ideology. If liberalism is an ideology, then illiberalism, the opposite of liberalism, we should also consider as an ideology. And as I've already mentioned, I think it's important to understand that Putin has both the will as well as the way to challenge liberalism generally and the liberal international order in particular. Um, at home, that's, that's clear and here's where the parallels are, although I think the Chinese autocracy is deeper and more um, uh, secure and more widespread than the Russian autocracy. But Russia is becoming more and more autocratic. I would say 2021 actually was a turning point for the deepening of that autocratic system at home. I'll say more about that in questions if you're interested. But this is the part I think is, is more contestable, which is that I do believe that over the years, it wasn't true 20 years ago, wasn't true when Vladimir Putin and I met in the spring of 1991, by the way. We, we go way back. Uh, not really Facebook friends anymore, but um, I, I have known him for a long time and watched him. But I think in the last several years, if you look and you read what he says, you see the crystallization of a concept of a set of ideas. Uh, and again, echoing what, what uh, Dr. Economy said about the Chinese, sovereignty is at the top of this list. But it also is weaved in with conservative values, nationalism, and economic populism. Um, first and foremost, Putin is obsessed with uh, what he calls American support for regime change against regimes that we don't like. Now, there's a problem in rebutting this, by the way, that sometimes we do overthrow regimes that we don't like. Uh, and believe me, as the US ambassador in Russia for a little while, that was a debate we had pretty heatedly, well before, uh, by the way, uh, later um, uh, attempts at regime change that, that, that Putin describes to us. But when it became uh, closer to home in December of 2011, that's when he purported to push back on the sovereignty argument and saying, uh, you know, the United States does not support sovereignty. It undermines sovereignty and countries like Russia and China and Iran have to push back. Uh, he also weaves it in, however, with, I would say, just blatant anti-Western nationalism. You can just read what he said there about Ukraine 2014. Um, and going all the way back to the last time that he met with President uh, Biden, back then he was Vice President Biden, and this is a photo from 2011 uh, when Putin was Prime Minister, he has been pushing back on liberalism as a concept um, very very explicitly, he's no longer trying to say he's a liberal. He does want to say he's a Democrat, but he, he's very explicitly pushing back on liberalism as an idea. And in this particular meeting, it was very dramatic at one point in the conversation. And by the way, Putin likes drama, right? He, he, he looks for these moments. He leaned across uh, to the vice president and he said, you look at us and you think we're like you. And he went like this to show his white skin, right? And remember, he has these piercing blue eyes. And he, and, but then he said, 
but we're not like you. We're different. And that was a signal to say, we are not part of Europe. We are not part of the liberal international order. We don't want to be part of it. We're different. And then just uh, here, I, I don't want to, we don't have time to dig into it, but, but you know, I think it's important to sometimes read what people say uh, and not just think it's just propaganda. And I think if you watch Putin's rhetoric over time, he has become much more enamored with this idea that conservative orthodox values is a key component of Russian identity. And in the last several years, he and his, his proxies have talked about exporting these set of ideas. They're not just Russian ideas, they're universal ideas, or at least within Europe, they are ideas that can be exported. And let's just turn to that second part. Not only does he have these ideas that he's invested into trying to propagate them abroad, um, much like China, by the way, I think there's lots of parallels here. So in the media sphere and bots and, 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 and disinformation, uh, uh, Professor Starbird, will, I'm guessing, is gonna talk more about this. But I would just say, if you're not interested in promoting ideology, why would you spend so much money on these kinds of instruments to propagate these ideas abroad? Personal diplomacy, I call it the illiberal international. Uh, Putin has cultivated uh, like-minded thinkers all over the world, especially in Europe. This is the top five. Uh, here's the B team. Uh, and here's where he really wants to go. He really wants to pull Xi Jinping into the illiberal international against uh, the, the international system. He has not succeeded in this yet. Third, he they have learned from us. Uh, they've learned from watching groups like the National Endowment for Democracy, the National Democratic Institute, the International Republican Institute, and have begun to foster party-to-party -party ties, NGO uh, contacts, and investments here in the United States. Uh, again, paralleling some of the things that the Chinese have done. Just up the road from us here, by the way, is Fort Ross, where the Russians have uh, renewed uh, that uh, California State Park, not Americans. And then finally, his most blunt instrument, of course, is soldiers and so-called volunteers exporting ideology through the use of force. Um, and I just want to underscore here that he's no longer interested in being part of the club. I think 2014 was when he just decided to heck with it all. Uh, I don't want to be part of these clubs anymore. Again, that was not Putin from uh, 20 years ago. Um, and once he took that, that, that departure, you know, there are several things that Putin does in this international system that are violent. Um, uh, revision is a nice word. I would just say, uh, you know, violations of the international order, annexation being at the top of that. But, you know, Russian soldiers today currently occupy territory in three countries. Um, radically interfering in elections in the United States and other places, and even assassinating people abroad, including in NATO countries. And then finally, tragically, I would just remind you that he's had some successes uh, in pushing and propagating uh, these ideological campaigns against liberalism for autocracy, uh, and in his view, in defense of uh, sovereignty. And I think we need to be sober about that. I have to say personally that I've changed my views about 
how successful he's been because of that long list uh, there that I put at the bottom. Finally, will Putinism outlive Putin? My honest answer is I don't know. Uh, and with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Anand. Fantastic, Mike. Thank you so much. Um, and then next we have um, Abbas on Iran. Uh, thank you, Anna, for organizing this uh, wonderful uh, panel. Uh, it is a pleasure to follow these two wonderful and frightening uh, presentations. Although you arranged it by alphabetical order, if you wanted to arrange it conceptually, uh, it couldn't have been a better arrangement. Uh, my sense is that uh, the challenge to liberal democracy today is at a historically perilous moment. I think it's even more perilous than the 30s when totalitarian regimes and the Third International were articulating a very cogent argument against liberal democracy. And I'll try to describe why I think this moment is a little more perilous. All you need to do is look around the United States, look at what happened in the uh, Congress of the United States yesterday, and you can see that uh, some basic ideas of liberal democracy are being challenged in the most liberal democratic societies around the world. And those ideas have now uh, an international of authoritarianism, de facto international of authoritarianism, that I think is every bit as ideologically cogent, uh, and I'll try to describe why, uh, as the Communist International was, the Third International was, in challenging liberal democracy as bourgeois gimmick, as bourgeois dictatorship. Iran is the third component of this international. We heard about China, we heard about Russia, we heard about how many of their actions and game plans follow exactly the same model. I'm here to tell you that Iran is the minor third element of this pattern. And it adds a very peculiar, uh, different component to this international. Uh, the Chinese model of authoritarianism is essentially state uh, capitalism, oligarchical capitalism, under the guise of some iteration of Marxism, Marxism-Leninism. And they're increasingly, as I read people uh, like uh, Larry Diamond, like Dr. Economy, they're more and more depending on uh, their ideological components. So it is challenging liberal democracy from a state oligarchical uh, capitalist perspective within Marxist ideology. Putin is exactly the same economic model, but with a kind of a Bonapartist uh, ideology. Uh, I, I'm not sure, but obviously Mike knows about this, uh, whether he has an ideology or not, but his ideology is Bonapartism. His ideology is that I can save you, no one else can, the way Bonaparte did, the way all authoritarian and many totalitarian uh, regimes indicate. The Iranian model is in economic structure essentially the same. It's state capitalist, oligarchic, rent control, uh, rent seeking, enormously corrupt, but it is based on a spiritual promise as well as a critique of liberal democracy. Where those two essentially are missing 
this one offers a potent uh, alternative. Uh, some quarter of the world are Muslims. Uh, majority are not Shiites, as Iran is a Shiite majority country, but uh, essentially trying to get them to follow this model is very much the Iranian model, part of their game plan. And the fact that we now are at a historic moment where there are more Muslims living in Western countries than ever in the history of the 1400 year exchange between Muslims and Christianity. They're almost till at the time of the war, there was never a moment where there were more Muslims in the Christian world as there were Christians and Jews in the Muslim world. Now that has changed and the numbers are increasing. And Iranian regime is very much, as well as other Muslim countries, against liberal democracy, as well as Wahhabi iteration that is against liberal democracy, as well as ISIS, which has a different iteration, but is against liberal democracy. They are trying to mobilize this. And this combination, this trilateral combination, China, Russia, and Iran uh, are very much moving in the direction of an alliance. Iran in the last month and a half, two months, has offered a 25 year deal with China, which is uh, arguably unlike any deal that has been offered by Iranian government to any outside power ever. As far as I know, it is a blanket uh, offer to China to become the dominant economic force. China hasn't yet agreed because China has many balls in the air and it wants to know whether this one is to its benefit. Virtually the same agreement has been offered to Russia. Russia now has a virtual open uh, arena to engage in Iranian politics. Zarif, Iran's foreign minister, just gave a talk where he, a secret talk that was leaked, where he talked about how Russia tried to undermine uh, the nuclear deal. Russia went out of its way so that Iran could not sign that nuclear deal. And the hell that has been raised against them, part of it apparently with the coordination of the Russian embassy in Tehran, according to some reports from Tehran, is just remarkable. So the message that the Iranian regime offers in this ideological apparatus, and it is a very sophisticated ideological apparatus, uh, because there has been so much attention on the nuclear deal, because there have been so much attention on the military component of Iran's proxies, there hasn't been almost any attention on this ideological component. To me, it is no less significant than these others. And to me, the regime's game plan in Western democracies is exactly as uh, Mike and as Dr. Economy uh, pointed out, creating spaces here where it is increasingly more difficult to tell the truth, where there are varieties of actors, journalists, uh, de facto lobbyists, actual lobbyists to offer the Iranian point of view and make the space more uh, favorable to the Iranian message. So what is the message? And this message predates uh, in terms of Khamenei, who is the supreme leader now and has been for 35 years almost, uh, 
it predates in terms of his ideological thinking, it predates the Islamic revolution. Khamenei has been saying these things, has been writing these things for almost 50 years. Khamenei has translated three of the most cogently anti-liberal democratic texts written by Sayyid Ghut, the most influential theorist of the Islamic world. Khamenei, before becoming the supreme leader, translated these texts. And the three together, along with everything Khamenei has said over the last 35 years, is an indictment of liberal democracy as a Judeo-Christian hoax, as a way to hide uh, Western hegemony as a way to hide Western the despise and Western hatred of Islam. He has been obsessingly talk about a culture war. He militarizes this culture war, talks about a culture in NATO. He talks about uh, Nye, Professor Nye as being part of the cultural NATO. Why? Because they are talking about liberal values. The internet is part, part of this cultural uh, NATO. So they have organized a remarkable uh, apparatus, a university in Iran that almost no one talks about, is exactly modeled on the Petrus Lumumba University during the Soviet era, where they bring in thousands, not hundreds, thousands of people from all over the world, including China, the China about which they haven't said a word in terms of China's genocide against the Muslims. But they bring, uh, at least at the time of the corona, there were a thousand Chinese Muslims being trained in this school that I'm talking about. I, I, we don't have time for me to give the, the numbers about how much money they're spending. It is very difficult to get to the actual number because many of these uh, institutions uh, in Iran and throughout the Muslim world, throughout the, the Western world, mosques that are operated by Iran are cultivating this fundamental idea. Liberal democracy has failed. The uh, national international order is nothing but a gimmick to legitimize Western hegemony. The popular sovereignty idea, the idea of popular sovereignty, that there is something called a nation is specifically, repeatedly said by Khamenei and articulated in this view to be part of this Western colonial gimmick. We, Khamenei says, are not part of a nation. We are part of a spiritual community. We are part of an ummah. That's written into the constitution. That network, in my view, complements the Russian and the Chinese challenge to liberal democracy as a failing state and the false, I think, premise that authoritarianism not only makes the trains run on time and kills all the flies, but it can do better for your life. That is, to me, the challenge of our time. And the fact that they use the social media extremely effectively, Iran as effectively as China and Russia, makes this that historic perilous moment. They have better ways of spreading their falsehood and their false ideology. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much, Abbas, for that absolutely uh, bracing presentation. Um, next, we'll have uh, Kate, who will talk about exactly what you just mentioned, about the use of social media and the use of disinformation tactics, both at home and abroad. All right, so I'm going to talk about um, informational threats to liberal democracy, but ones that are coming from within. Uh, in this case, in the US context, looking at the threat of domestic participatory disinformation and its relationship to the violent attack on the US Capitol on January 6, 2021. And let's, let's start here with a view outside the Capitol uh, on January 6, um, with a collection of flags. We have Trump flags, uh, American flags, Confederate flags, proudly waved by a group of self-described patriots who had overtaken the US Capitol grounds. Their garb includes the red, white, and blue of both US and Trumpist patriotism, as well as the camouflage and protective gear of military members and militia. For an explanation of what motivated that insurrection attempt, we need look no further uh, than the Twitter account of the US president that day, where he repeats the false claim that his sacred landslide victory was stolen from him and his followers, and where he refers to the insurrectionists as patriots. This tweet was the latest in a long series going back to the summer of 2020, and even to the election season of 2016. When we think about the story of disinformation 2016, we think of it predominantly uh, as foreign in origin and Russian, uh, perpetrated by inauthentic actors or fake accounts and coordinated by various agencies in Russia or another foreign country. The 2020 election was a very different story. This one was largely domestic, um, coming from inside the US. We, had, we saw some foreign activities, but not playing a major role. This was also authentic, often perpetrated through social media and other outlets by, by known entities, by blue check or verified accounts, uh, along with other members of the connected crowd. It wasn't entirely coordinated, but largely cultivated and even organic in places with everyday people uh, creating and spreading disinformation about the election. Back in the early fall, when it was focused, focused mostly on discrediting the mail-in voting process, Bankler and colleagues labeled this a disinformation campaign. We accept that disinformation framing here, seeing this as an effort, at least on some levels, to intentionally produce and spread a misleading meta-narrative of massive voter fraud. This disinformation campaign was, and still is, a, an assault on democracy itself, meant to undermine our trust in the democratic process. It was also much more than a single false narrative. It, the big lie weaved together many different narratives from the perceived vulnerability of mail-in ballots to false claims that a number of dead people were voting to the false accusation that Dominion voting machines were shifting votes uh, and uh, many, many different narratives in between. Those of us that study disinformation recognize this as kind of common of just kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall um, to cause confusion and doubt. Uh, our team was conducting rapid research, uh, rapid response research to disinformation with the Election Integrity Partnership. Um, and, and through that work, we identified and analyzed hundreds of different distinct incidents of false or misleading uh, information about alleged voter fraud connected to dozens of different narratives. And this presentation draws from and extends from some of that research with the Election Integrity Partnership. In one sense, this disinformation campaign was a top-down effort spread through the massive megaphones of political elites within the United States to their audiences. The main conveyor of these messages was the former president himself. This tweet posted um, all the way back in June 2020 was one of several early posts about voter fraud in this election cycle. He claimed it would be rigged, that the ballots would be printed and ostensibly filled out in foreign countries, and that it would be the scandal of our times. 
If we look broadly across the course of election 2020 conversation, we see a finite number of repeat offenders, individuals who are repeatedly, uh, individuals and organizations who are repeatedly influential in spreading content related to the big lie. This is drawn from Twitter data, but we can see the same trends across, across some of the other social media platforms. It, this list contains members of the Trump family in blue, including the president and his two adult sons. In orange, we see accounts of hyperpartisan news outlets and media pundits on the political right. Uh, these and other influencers repeatedly amplified false and misleading claims about voter fraud. They set and repeatedly reinforced a frame of a rigged election through which their audiences would interpret the events of the 2020 election. So disinformation in the 2020 election was clearly a top-down phenomenon, but the dynamics were also bottom-up with members of the online crowd actually helping to produce false claims and narratives. One narrative that emerged from these efforts was Sharpiegate. It makes a good example here. This narrative began with a number of people posting stories describing how they or someone they knew or heard about had been given sharpened pet had been given Sharpie pens to vote and how the pens had bled through the ballots and that they were worried their votes may not be counted. Official accounts attempted to correct these concerns on election day, explaining that the ballots were designed to be used with Sharpie pens and that the bleed through wouldn't affect the vote counting because the bubbles were staggered across the two sides. But these official statements did little to alleviate the concerns, which grew as more people shared and others opportunistically amplified their fears. Initially, the tone of many Sharpie tweets was one of concern, worries that votes wouldn't count, directives to bring your own pen. But as time went on, the content took on a more suspicious tone, reflecting the existing collective belief that the election would be rigged. Eventually, the discourse shifted to explicit accusation that this was an intentional effort to disenfranchise specifically Trump voters. If we look at a temporal graph of how the term Sharpie began to spread in election-related data, this is a picture of when it just begins to take off. There were a few thousand tweets on election day, mostly with people that were genuinely concerned about what was happening. But the Sharpie gate narrative, the one that claimed conspiracy, really began to pick up in the small hours of November 4th, right after Fox News has called Arizona for candidate Biden. And, and it picks up in the context of Arizona, claiming that the Sharpie pens were affecting the vote in Maricopa County, Arizona. So what's driving this surge? Not surprisingly, some, same, many of the same right-wing influencers that appeared in our repeat offenders table above, including conservative activist Charlie Kirk and Trump's two adult sons. So what's going on here? This is just one example. Many others follow this dynamic where we see this interplay between political elites and online crowds. President Trump and his campaign didn't just prime their audience to be receptive to false narratives of voter fraud. They inspired them to produce those narratives themselves and then echoed those false claims back to them. Social media allow for this two-way exchange between populist political elites and their audiences, these grievance feedback loops. And this echo effect between grievances and of disenfranchised voters or voters who feel disenfranchised and the political elites feeding those grievances was quite powerful. What became Sharpiegate soon got wrapped up into a larger meta-narrative or movement called Stop the Steal. And it began, eventually began to manifest as a series of in-person rallies around the country. These rallies were called to action and organized by a collection of established GOP operatives, as well as more emergent pro-Trump influencers. This is one view of that discourse that was happening around Stop the Steal. It's a retweet network graph, and it shows who were the most um, 
highly retweeted accounts in, in the Stop the Steal conversation. And this top cluster here that I wanna focus on centers around high profile influencers within the discourse. These are the folks who have risen to the top and they tend to be repeatedly amplified by larger audiences. These influencers include individuals and groups that were organizing the Stop the Steal protests, several political personalities who spoke at the protests, as well as four elected officials of the Republican Party, including Donald Trump. The Stop the Steal movement held a series of protests through November and December, eventually culminated in a grand finale event in Washington, D.C., timed to coincide with the certification of Joe Biden's victory and accompanied by rhetoric from many inside the movement, including both the leaders and the rank and file, that this movement would somehow stop the certification. The rallies that brought the insurrectionists to D.C. were organized under this Stop the Steal banner. On January 6th, we saw these hyper-partisan social media accounts that are associated with the pro-Trump and Stop the Steal movement, accounts that I once mistakenly conceived of as mere caricatures of political partisans, literally come alive in a violent assault on the U.S. Capitol. These hashtag patriots were wearing and waving the symbols of their social media profiles as they stormed the Capitol building and, and using the rhetoric that had developed within some of the internet cultures in interaction with political elites who participate there. As I, as I finish this, I wanna present kind of a preliminary model for what I've been talking about and others as well as participatory disinformation. I created these visuals in hopes of describing the dynamics between political elites and their audiences. Elites here include elected political leaders, but also political pundits and media outlets, especially partisan media outlets, as well as social media influencers who have used disinformation and other tactics to gain reputation and grow large audiences online. These elites repeatedly spread the message of a rigged election, which set an expectation of voter fraud. This became a frame through which events were interpreted by their audiences. With their perspective on the world shaped by this frame, the online crowds generated false and misleading stories of voter fraud, echoing and reinforcing the frame. Sometimes these stories were produced intentionally with knowledge that they were false, but often they were generated sincerely by people who were misinterpreting the world based on this frame that they were given. Grassroots activists and social media influencers helped amplify, the, amplify these stories, passing the content up from the crowd to the political elites. The political elites echoed the false and misleading stories back to their audiences, reinforcing the frame, building a sense of collective grievance, and rewarding this audience, telling them that, that we're, we're hearing you, we, we're hearing you. Shared grievance is a power politi powerful political force. It can activate people to vote, as well as to take other political action in the world. These audiences echoed and reiterated this growing sense of greediness. We can actually see that violent language and calls to action began to increase in the conversation that was happening. The political elites began to mobilize and organize these audiences into a series of rallies and protests. And one of those led to the violent attack on the Capitol on January 6th. So participatory disinformation and participatory propaganda more generally makes for a powerful dynamic. Right now it's enabled by social media, but it also implicates the broader media ecosystem, as well as some members of the political establishment. People and entities at the top gain power, reputation, and money by participating in this disinformation phenomenon. And the tight feedback loops between elites and their audiences seem to make the system more responsive, but may also be leading it to spin out of control. We can see similar dynamics supporting right-wing populist movements all around the world.
So my conclusion, my sense is that the current conservative movement in the United States, at least the pro-Trump portion, is now dependent upon and deeply integrated into these toxic feedback loops. Some may, have, some may feel held hostage to it. Others may understand and embrace that this machine holds the keys to their power. Meanwhile, those committed to liberal democracy are convening in various Zoom rooms, asking how we can put a wrench in these systems to stop these toxic feedback loops. Um, and I'm gonna stop there with the note that I don't know that we have the answer right now. All right, and thank you all for letting me share. Wonderful, thank you so much. Um, this has been a fantastic set of presentations um, and it's already generated several questions. Um, there are questions for the individual speakers, but I thought we could start with a few that speak to uh, several people. Um, and the first one is from Timothy Gartnash, who asks, well, how would internal divisions within countries translate into aggressive external behavior, for example? If, you know, would, would sort of, you know, the fear of losing domestic legitimacy translate into aggression abroad? And to what extent do you see that in um, China, Russia, and Iran? Liz, why don't we start with you and just go in the same order? Can I just start by saying I normally feel like I occupy the darkest space on any panel. And in this panel, I feel like I'm the lightest and brightest. <laughs> organized by progression of depression. That's, that's, that's basically how I, I felt. By the end with Kate, I just, I, you know, was under my, under my desk here. Okay, um, so thanks um, uh, to Tim for the question. I guess... Um, you know, look, in China, we saw during COVID-19, uh, you know, in the earliest months uh, that there was this outburst on the Chinese uh, internet of uh, complaints, you know, calls for free speech, uh, calls for the party, uh, you know, to tell the truth. Uh, there were some individuals who actually went after and, you know, attacked Xi Jinping, you know, rhetorically, not, not physically. Um, and, uh, you know, we also saw then, you know, certainly the clampdown on the internet within about a month, but also uh, that China actually, you know, not just the wolf warrior diplomacy that everybody has become so familiar with, right? The very aggressive disinformation um, about uh, China's response and about the response of other countries, but also that China actually took a lot of actions militarily uh, during the pandemic. So beginning in, you know, March through June, July and August, uh, you know, China in the South China Sea, it sunk a Vietnamese boat, it, you know, named, you know, 50 odd features in the South China Sea, it, it made incursions into sort of Indonesian and Malaysian territorial waters, definitely Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, I mean, forget about Hong Kong, but yeah, the repression of Hong Kong. So very aggressive, actually, military actions at a time when, you know, the world was consumed with this pandemic, I don't think anybody would have anticipated that this was the response uh, that China would, would take. So was it opportunistic to try to make actual gains in realizing some of its sovereignty claims? Maybe, and then of course, the, I should have said also the Indian border dispute, that was the first you know, deadly border dispute in decades. Um, so, and you know, resulted in a huge backlash against China from India. So you know, with all of that, um, right, China basically undermined a lot of the positive narrative that it could have gotten uh, off of the pandemic by its military assertiveness, by its aggressive actions. So to me, that suggests that it, it had made the decision that the trade-off between sort of becoming beloved on the global stage 
and ensuring you know, that it, it had control domestically, that that control domestically was much more important. And you know, that sort of stirred up a lot of nationalism and, and other things through its wolf warrior diplomacy and its assertive military action. So I think, I think that's exactly right, that we did in fact see sort of concerns over domestic tensions um, also contributing to more military uh, assertiveness. So thanks for the question, Tim. Glad you're here with us. I wish we could see you and I look forward to you coming back to campus uh, in your normal uh, migration patterns. Um, with, without question, that dynamic exists in the Russia case. Um, I think it's important to remember that there's been an evolution of the Russian political system. And, and remember, there was a period when Russia was a, a, a democracy, according to Freedom House and other places that rate them. And uh, Russian foreign policy during that period, late Gorbachev period, and most of the Yeltsin years was very pro-Western uh, and pro-American. And that, that's, that was a period when they wanted to join the liberal international order. So I just remind you that, that it hasn't been a steady story in Russia. It's been a variable story for the last 30 years. Although if we go back 500 years or a thousand years, you know, if you're predicting, will Russia be autocratic next year? Uh, the prediction over a thousand years, the answer is yes, right? So it depends on what time frame you're looking at. Um, with respect to Putin, I would say um, a couple of things. He started with what I would consider a much more sophisticated autocratic regime. They called it managed democracy at first, and then they called it sovereign democracy, the very using that adjective. But it, it was not complete control. It was not the complete crackdown on everyone. There were pockets of pluralism. There was independent media. Uh, activists like Mr. Navalny were allowed to participate. They weren't allowed to be in elections, but they're allowed to be there. And then there were these pseudo political parties so that there was the veneer of competitive elections. Um, two things are striking to me. Over time, that space has grown smaller, especially after 2011 and the massive demonstrations against Putin, where he then blamed the West for fomenting revolution. By the way, that's exactly when I arrived to be the U.S. ambassador. So he blamed me personally, uh, and that and still does. By the way, he still thinks I'm operating the, the revolution here from Palo Alto. Um, uh, and then two, that, that didn't work as well as he wanted, Tim. And if you look at Putin's uh, approval ratings in the you know, 2012, 2013, yes, he won re-election in 2012, but he was stuck. He was, his, his approval ratings were stuck. And you know, this is when I was living in Russia and, and interacting with these pollsters. They're all personal friends of mine from 30 years ago. Um, and that's when... They, you know, I don't, I don't think it was the reason he invaded uh, Ukraine and annexed Crimea. The reason was to punish the Democrats. Uh, that's what we would call them. He called them Nazis that took over in Kiev in 2014, right? So that was very much to say, we're not going to have any more revolutions on our borders against my allies. But that was the big uptick. That's when he, he burst through to 80%. And that war and that annexation was very popular. So, you know, that causal relationship between domestic politics at home and belligerent foreign policy, I think was very clear cut in the Ukrainian case. I don't think that play is available to Mr. Putin moving forward. 
Um, you know, they talk about it, they threaten, you know, the buildup we just saw on the Ukrainian border just a few weeks ago. There was a lot of talk about going into Belarus to help Mr. Lukashenko stay in power. And, you know, looking at the data, it, you know, and then we have to be, you know, we have to worry about how good the data is and, you know, for all the reasons that it's hard to poll people in autocracies. Um, but I think that increasingly is not available as another option the next time around. Uh, in Russia, they call it the battle between television and the battle between the refrigerator. Um, and in 2014, people were glued to their televisions watching the great patriotic uh, reunification, right? They don't use the word annexation. They call it reunification of Crimea. Um, I think if he replays that game uh, in another country on the borders, I don't think it will have the, the same success. And therefore, that's why I think you've seen this pivot to a much more autocratic, you know, where Navalny is arrested and dying in, you know, uh, in, in prison, where people are being arrested at record numbers in this in the year 2021. That is not managed democracy or sovereign democracy of 15 years ago. Since Tim is uh, from England and loves Shakespeare, I have to begin his, uh, the response to his wonderful question with a quote from Shakespeare, keep giddy minds busy with foreign wars. Uh, that has been the policy of authoritarian regimes uh, and the Iranian regime is no exception. Uh, I also wanna make a small uh, comment on uh, what uh, Mike said about his role, according to Putin. Uh, one of the other characteristics, I think, of uh, anti-liberal uh, democratic uh, ideologies is that they're all paranoid. They believe in conspiracy theories, and that's a central component of uh, uh, this uh, regime in Iran. And they actually wrote an article about Mike in Iranian media. They said that he and I and uh, Larry Diamond were trying to foster a democratic revolution in Iran in 2009. And when we failed, uh, Mike's bosses, according to them, sent him to Russia to try the same model there. So the idea, the sickness, the paranoia is endemic and, and the belief that there is a conspiracy against Islam or against Putin, it doesn't matter, against the Communist Party. Uh, the recent leaks taped from Zarif really gives an uh, interesting uh, uh, answer to uh, uh, Tim's question. Zarif says, every time we came close, that means Zarif and his reformists, we came close to rapprochement with the United States. The radicals would create some kind of a controversy outside Iran. They would attack a US ship. They would take American uh, naval uh, forces hostage. Uh, recent uh, movements in the Persian Gulf, uh, attacks on the US uh, naval ships are all part of the pattern that he was trying to make. In other words, keep and create a national international crisis and create the sense that the, reg the regime is under attack. But uh, because we don't want to depress the, the economy, I want to end on a good news. Uh, the Iranian regime is paranoid and authoritarian and keen on undermining liberal democracy. But uh, Iranian society, Iranian women, Iranian uh, uh, youth uh, are very much on a different trajectory. 
they want to create a more democratic society. There are in every aspect of their daily life, more uh, akin to a liberal democratic polity than the regime. There is a split, there is truly a remarkable split between what the regime wants and what the regime thinks it can force people to do and what people actually do. And the other conspiracy, of course, according to the Iranian regime, was uh, for Timothy Gart Nash to go to Iran. They're still writing about how he is part of the conspiracy, the Stanford conspiracy to create a revolution in Iran. So join the revolution. And the fact that you're on this panel is going to be used as proof positive that this is a conspiracy. Well, isn't this what Kate is talking about? I know we are sort of at the, the groundswell of the next conspiracy. Fantastic. Um, so there are several questions that have also emerged that touch on cooperation. Um, and maybe we'll take this in reverse order. And the extent to which domestic misinformation um, is interacting with foreign forces, the extent to which Russia, China, and Iran are cooperating together, and the limits of this cooperation. And Kate, why don't we start with you? Um, you made the interesting point that you know, in 2016, it was foreign intervention. In 2020, it was domestic. So what change and how does this speak to these sort of broader interactions between different countries and domestic forces? I would actually start with saying that both of those stories are far more complex than how they were characterized. Um, disinformation, the story in 2016, that it was that it was a foreign attack, but clearly we could see that the, the foreign disinformation was actually intersecting with, um, with the US domestic networks as well. We just didn't highlight that portion. It was a lot easier rhetorically to focus on the foreign disinformation element and to problematize that than it was to talk about where those were integrated with US actors who were spreading the same kinds of content. Um, in 2020, what we mostly saw were with the foreign actors, and this is borrowed from, from other researchers at the Election Integrity Partnership because it wasn't what we were focused on, but um, folks at Graphica and the Stanford team note, noted that there were attempts by Iran to participate. There were attempts by China. There were attempts by, um, by Russia to participate in these. Mostly were echoing things that had already kind of bubbled up domestically, mostly was sort of late, but, you know, something was coming out of RT, but we had already seen it go viral, um, a false claim go viral in, in the U.S. context without any help. So they, they were trying to participate, but the, 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 the generation of these narratives was, was so organic already in the U.S. that it really didn't, didn't really need the help. But um, I, I do think there's, even as a researcher who's been looking at this for a long time, there's still blurry, uh, blurry pieces of my own conceptual model about how these things fit together because we do see these the same narratives show up on um, outlets that repeatedly push disinformation that are coming from from Russia or China or Iran. They often go through some of the same media outlets, and what that relationship is could be financially motivated. There could be all sorts of reasons behind it, um, but clearly we can see that there, there's connections, but they may not represent conspiracy as much as opportunity in how these, these networks are being used to, to spread false information. Thank you. Um, Abbas, you had mentioned that you know, Iran had extended a hand to both Russia and to China, and that it's also very active in the, sort of the cybersphere. So can you talk about more of us if, you know, where Iran sees its interests? I mean, is it, do, would they prefer to cooperate with China, with Russia, with anyone, or do they just want to go alone? Um, uh, I think they have now clearly indicated, particularly in the last few months, uh, that the initial policy their initial proposed uh, slogan in 1979, neither East nor West. That was what Khomeini offered, neither East nor West. Now they openly talk about on 
abashedly that that is the wrong uh, slogan. We need to go the East. Khamenei gave a speech. He said, the next century is an Asian century. The West is finished. The West is in a decline. The West is uh, uh, essentially uh, unable to manage its own affairs. Uh, he even uh, rejected uh, uh, Pfizer and Moderna and all European uh, vaccines against Corona. They said if these guys were competent, they would have solved their own problem. So he's clearly moving Iran in that direction and using uh, uh, their propaganda against the US and reflecting it in Iranian media. I think in talking about this cycle of uh, anti-liberal democracy narrative in Iran at least, and Mike and uh, the economy can tell us about Russia, uh, a constant source of nourishment for Iran are some of the leftists in Europe and the United States who from a position of rightful criticism of the shortcomings of capitalism, shortcomings of Western hegemony, say things that fit exactly their eclectic narrative. And that combination gives them more legitimacy than they deserve. And my hope is that those in the West who are articulating these views, who are articulating rightful criticism of hegemonic ideas, are more careful not to lend them, uh, articulate them in a way that can be used by the likes of Putin or Khamenei in Iran. Could I just jump in on this, uh, on the, the American side, because um, Kate was talking about social media and disinformation. I just want to add, when we're, when we're talking about Russia, remember that they, they use multiple methods, right? So in 2016, of course, their, mo their most effective mecha mechanism was stealing data, uh, stealing data from the Clinton campaign and, and John Podesta, and then uh, you know, sending that into the ecosystem in ways that Kate and others have written about that. And then in 2020, their most effective uh, mechanism was actually uh, in the physical world uh, to propagate this myth about Biden's corruption and Hunter Biden's corruption and meeting with Mr. Giuliani uh, with Ukrainians and with people we now know to be Russian intelligence officers. And I would urge people to read the DNI's report re released a few weeks ago, just as another illustration of how that works. Um, and the second thing I wanted to say, um, and I, I, I love the, the model of elites and, and the, in this interactive way uh, that uh, Kate, Professor Starbird, Dr. Starbird, <laughs> uh, we're using all these, Dr. Milani, I'm gonna call you doctor too. Um, um, and, and, I, and I just wanna say that it, it, it's, it, I don't quite know how to, you know, like we did in 2016, um, very difficult to measure the causal impact independent of what happens domestically, right? Um, and maybe Kate knows how to do that more systematically than we did in 2016. But what, what I would say on a personal level, uh, Professor Jamal Abusa, uh, is um, it's, it's, I find it to be intensifying not to be retreating, right? So let me just share, just because you brought it up, I, I'm, I, if I, I'll just take seven seconds on this, okay? 
Um, I've been dealing with um, disinformation for a long time. Uh, this is stuff that was put out on, about me in 2012 about McFall leading these demonstrations by RT, right? I think it's very important what Kate said about this is an ecosystem. It's not just Twitter. It's RT tweeting back and forth. And then here's some physical thing. They put out a, a calendar about me and my uh, the people that I was supporting. And then this, this is ancient history. This is nine years ago, but look at that disinformation. That's Photoshopping me uh, campaigning for Navalny. That's what that is on the right. And on the left is a physical poster at a bus stop saying that I am the one orchestrating the revolution, a big May 6th demonstration. Um, this stuff now appears on my Twitter feed all the time from many of the Americans that Kate posted in her, her uh, uh, list of the biggest folks propagating disinformation in the United States. Uh, many of those people say exactly the same things about me personally. Uh, I don't know if it's coordinated, but I'm just underscoring that this is a very entangled. And when Alexander Dugan, one of the most important figures of Eurasian thinking in Russia, appears on Infowars, as an expert on geopolitics, that is really striking to me. And one last anecdote, uh, two years ago when I was spending some time in Beijing, I showed up at a conference sponsored by some pro you know, Chinese government thing. And Alexander Dugan was a guest and one of the leading speakers uh, speaking right after the editor in chief of Global Times at a panel about geopolitics. That's what I mean, I mean, it sounds like, you know, with both in the Iranian and the Russian case, you have these outsized personalities, right? And that basically steer the foreign policy and steer the degree of cooperation. Do we see something like that in China as well? Is there sort of a reason, are there sort of potential partners that China sees in its goals? Um, and how much of it is driven just by Xi himself? Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I can't even get over what Mike just said. I have like one Chinese reporter who, you know, criticizes me and I'm like, stunned for the rest of the day. I don't know what to do with myself anyway. So, um, uh, you know, uh, look, I think, um, you know, China is um, interested in uh, ensuring that it has partners and allies, uh, especially to counter what it now thinks of as a US effort to strengthen its alliance system. Uh, and Russia and Iran are both naturals, right? And they did, I think, I can't remember whether it was Abbas or Mike who talked about the fact that they had um, military exercises. I think it was Abbas together. Um, and, you know, the Russia-China partnership has been uh, growing stronger. They do have areas where they're not completely aligned. I'd say the Arctic is one. There are some other issues, I think, as China grows and it becomes more of a security player, it may run up against Russia and the Middle East a little bit. Who knows? Putin plays second fiddle, but maybe only, you know, to a point. So I'm always sort of watching for that. But I think for right now, uh, it finds comfort uh, with uh, Iran and, and with Russia. I will say that when I do a lot of track twos with Chinese, you know, scholars and think tank uh, analysts, um, you know, Zoom things now, the one thing that they are constantly, constantly hitting on is that the U.S. and China do not have an ideological conflict. 
that our conflict is military potentially, but it's really just, it's economic. And it's basically because China's rising and the US is declining and it's just the nature of things, but it is not ideological. And I think that has to do with the fact that when they look at the top 10 economies in the world and they see that nine of them pretty much uh, putting aside Russia and purchasing power parity, Mike, uh, nine of them are democracies. They don't think that looks so good to them anymore. So I, I think that's just an interesting point that even though right now the Chinese are projecting an enormous amount of confidence uh, at the top leadership, you know, with all of their rhetoric, rhetoric about Pax Americana is over and this, I think, at the second tier level, uh, I think there's a lot of concern about what the Biden administration is doing, ideas about the democracy summit and you know, not just working with the Asian allies, but now really trying to work with European allies as well on issues like human rights and, and other things. So um, I would just say, um, you know, they're, they're, they're looking, I think, with a little more concern now uh, in many respects than they did during the Trump administration. That's fascinating, right? So Iran and Russia, our speakers have suggested, are driven by an ideology. And China is much more interested in basically getting ahead economically and views this as a much more pragmatic competition. Um, Wait, sorry, sorry, Anna, I just have to correct that. No, no, no. Sorry. Xi Jinping very much sees this also as an ideological competition. Okay. I do not okay. want to lead you. I'm saying they don't want us to frame it that way. Got it. Got they end up on the short end of the stick. Yeah. That's a really important intervention. Thank you. Um, so we have a minute left. Um, so I don't think there's any way we can possibly get to all the questions that we have. So instead, what I would like to do is to thank our panelists for an absolutely fantastic, if chilling, set of presentations um, and invite everyone to come next week at the same time, where we'll talk about some of the potential solutions, some of the potential responses um, to these enormous challenges that have been outlined by our speakers. Um, so with that, thank you very much and a huge thank you to our panelists for these amazing presentations. Thank you so much. Thank you.